0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey guys, this is Kevin. Before we get to our episode, I want to let you know about our fundraiser we are doing for our app. As you know, I've been wanting to build an app to make all of our 150 podcasts listed by topic and completely searchable. So if you're driving to work and you have oral boards coming up, you can easily access our six-plus oral board episodes. Or if you're going driving into work thinking about the Whipple you're going to do, you can easily access Dr. Cameron discussing how he does this. Or maybe you're preparing for your M&M presentation and you have to discuss a bile duct injury. Well, you can just search bile duct injury in our app. And it will pull up all the episodes that have bile duct mentioned in them. And then you can hear Dr. Lilimo discuss his approach to repairing a bile duct injury. We've been working on the app for a number of months. We have the design laid out, and we have most of the coding done for the Android app. Unfortunately, surgeons prefer Apple, as over 80% of our listeners listen on an Apple device. Well, this makes things more difficult and therefore expensive. When this rolls out, and hopefully in early 2018, I want everyone to be able to enjoy it for free. And the only way we can do that is if we get some support from our listeners to help us make this app possible. Through November 22nd, you can show your support for Behind the Knife by clicking on the link in the show notes to buy a shirt. It has our logo on the front and dominate the day across the back. $20 for a standard t-shirt and $25 for a fitted triblend cotton t-shirt. Check it out. It could be a good Christmas present. And thanks for your help.
1: Hello again, this is Dominic Forte and Wu Do with our continuing coverage of the 2017 ACS Clinical Congress. Uh, today, we'll be speaking to uh, Sharmila Disanayake, who is Professor and Peter C. Canazaro Chair at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. She's given two presentations over the past days about her technique for subtotal cholecystectomy and we're so excited to have her on to discuss this.
2: Interesting fact, Dr. Disanayaka is actually the youngest chair of surgery at an academic surgical department. Welcome to Behind the Knife.
3: So thank you, and thank you guys for having me.
2: Today we witnessed an excellent talk where you were discussing uh, your technique and your approach for the subtotal cholecystectomy. Uh, can you tell us um, in what scenarios, when you go and look inside laparoscopically, what prompts you to consider a different approach to your standard laparoscopic cystectomy?
3: The key needs to be that you can do safe dissection in the hepatocystic triangle. And this is different, by the way, from the triangle of Calotte that we all learn about. If there is dense inflammation around the liver such that it's obscuring the cystic duct, artery, uh, cystic artery, cystic duct, and that anatomy, you should at least stop and think about it. And something that I like to suggest to my residents for most operations is to give yourself a pause. You know, it's not a bad idea if you see something that you didn't expect before you went into the surgery to just take a pause and go, okay, let me reassess. What am I trying to achieve? What are my goals? And the goals for this patient should be to safely cure their symptoms and relieve their suffering without causing them more harm. I mean, that's our goal for all our patients, right? So if you can do that with a standard cause dystectomy, great. But if you think you may not be able to do that or you may cause more harm, then you need to think of a different option. I think that's when you go to a subtotal.
2: And you had mentioned in your in your talk that there was a paradigm shift that you were advocating for where, although the total cholecystectomy can be more satisfying for the resident, that a safety first approach, cholecystectomy second approach might be the better paradigm shift. Can you speak to that a little bit?
3: So again, it is the, not the frequency of a complication, but the consequences of it that needs to be kept in mind. So common bile duct injuries, as you know, are not common. And and even if you were to never do a subtotal and always do a total cholecystectomy, you probably wouldn't have more than one or two in your career, we would hope. If, if you did them, there'd be a real problem. However, the consequence of those can be catastrophic. And often these are very major injuries that result in patient death or lifelong disability. And so in my mind, they need to be avoided at all costs. For trauma, for example, right now we talk about zero preventable deaths. I think the time is for us to think about zero preventable bile duct injuries. And if you're going to do that, then you need to have other strategies that will help you in these difficult situations. Um, And they're getting more and more common because now we do early cholecystectomy. It used to be standard to wait six to eight weeks and then come back. Now we do these early, and some of these cases are very inflamed and do force you to think of an alternate route
1: that's excellent uh you know you refer in your talk to the paper you published last year describing your techniques i was wondering if you could kind of recapitulate that a little for us
3: okay so the steps of the operation so it's very simple i always tell people i can teach it to you in five minutes um the paper is just there for you to refer to later um you start by Opening the gallbladder with an energy device, and I always use an energy device for all these operations. It's, it's pretty much essential. You could probably do this with cautery, but it will be a bloody mess and, and make life miserable. So, with an energy device, you perforate the gallbladder high on the anterior surface you then use the injury device to cut straight across to where the gallbladder is adherent to the liver, and that's where you stop. And then you go superiorly and remove the dome of the gallbladder, leaving behind any posterior wall that's attached to the gallbladder. Now, obviously, you're opening the gallbladder at this point, so you need to use suction and try to reduce the amount of bile that you spill. And if there are stones, as there almost certainly will be, you I always put in a laparoscopic bag, and catch all the stones at this point. Because there are consequences to spilled stones. You have about a 9% complication rate. If you don't pick up the stones, there's almost a 25% complication rate that can manifest up to 10 years after the operation. So you really want to not spill stones. So once you've done that, you then take your energy device and cut straight down towards the infundibulum, staying lateral and anterior. And when you're about a centimeter from the infundibulum, you then cut towards the liver bed along the lateral and medial sides of the gallbladder as described before. Now, if you know your anatomy, you'll realize that you're going to go through the cystic artery immediately. But because you're using an energy device that usually handles it just fine. If you see it and can clip it, that's fine too, but it's usually not necessary. Once you've done that, I usually cauterize the posterior mucosa, might slow down the mucosal a little bit, and then I leave drains to um, create sort of a controlled bile leak because it's quite common for there to be bile leakage from the cystic duct. I don't routinely suture ligate it. Some other speakers, as you heard today, do. Um, I find that it usually opens up anyway, no matter what. But after a few weeks, the bile drainage slows and you can just remove the drain and the patient is great.
2: So, a couple follow-up questions to that technique. Uh, number one, do you routinely put a catheter down the um, duct and shoot a cholangiogram? And number two, uh, what's your uh, time frame that you leave the drains in for?
3: So the first question, I don't do routine cholangiograms because usually if I suspect a common bile duct stone, I have got a preoperative ERCP in these cases. There's a lot of debate as to whether we should do that or should just do IOCs. I'm all in favor of intraoperative cholangiogram instead. But in these very difficult cases, you can cause some injury trying to cannulate the uh, cystic duct. However, The nice thing with the subtotal approach is you can see the gallbladder from the inside, so it's very easy to identify that orifice. Threading a cholangiogram catheter through it, I think, is fine. It can be done quite easily and safely, so I think it's a nice adjunct to it. Uh, I do that selectively. For example, if I can see the cystic ductness large... But the key is, if I could see the cystic duct, I wouldn't be doing a subtotal anyway. You know, these are the cases where you can't see anything. And so, you know, would you really do anything even if you did see an abnormal cholangiogram at that time? Probably not. I'd probably wait and come back. So I don't routinely do a cholangiogram for those reasons. And you had another question that I'm blanking on. Okay, the length of drains. So when I first started, I used to leave them in for about eight weeks. Now I think that's overly conservative. If there's a high volume bile leak, which is about more than 250 mils a day, I'll often get an ERCP and post up standard speeds. The resolution you can usually then take the drains out in one week to two weeks. If you do not do that, and nah, nah, you know it's another procedure, I don't routinely do it, then you leave the drains in about three to four weeks, and they should be fine. There are a few patients who will have a bile leak ongoing for a bit longer, and then what I do is what we used to do with T-tubes routinely, where you just gradually back the drain out, and you form a tract behind you so that you go, say, one to two centimeters a week, and then by about the eight-week mark, your drains are pretty much out, and uh, the patient does not have bioperitinitis.
1: No in in the, all this you've been describing your technique for the fenestrating type what led you to prefer fenestrating over the reconstituting
3: so actually, the only type I was formally taught was reconstituting. When I was a resident, I had a surgeon with some H P B expertise and actually a liver transplant surgeon who did teach the reconstituting type with the stapler. Um, he, I think, was going a little bit too high, almost close to the dome, and thus those patients had recurrent symptoms. So I didn't like that idea at all, but I completely agreed with him that there needed to be an alternative. And so I honestly sort of came to the fenestrating type by accident when I was doing an open call cystectomy once on a really terrible case and really did not feel I could safely dissect. And so I did a fenestrating technique without knowing it was a thing. And then afterwards, I went and read like we should always do and discovered that other people had done this before me. Uh, but I sort of developed this as my preferred technique because it fit with my basic principles of safe surgery. You're staying out of the danger zone, you use McKelma's shield, which Essentially means this a mental covering over the hepatocystic triangle, and you leave that inflammation alone, so you should not cause injury because you're just staying away, you know staying out of dodge. It makes sense to me that this is a safe approach
2: that uh, is easy to do and easy to teach and a final note about kind of complications following this. Uh, what are you? What is your experience with the percentage of patients that go on to need a re-intervention or go on to need a follow-on cholecystectomy?
3: So the most common re-intervention is an ERCPN stand, and those are for the patients who have high bile leak. Some of these patients will have stones in the common bile duct, which perhaps would have been better cleared at, at uh, original surgery, but again you're doing this in these inflamed cases. So I would argue that even though it's an additional procedure, doing it by ERCP is probably safer for the patient. So ERCP is needed, in my experience, about 20% of the time, and that's similar to the literature, actually 20 to 30%. The... Reoperation rate is much lower. For my series, it's 5%. If you look at the data, it runs around 9%. So so that's the ballpark. And I think that's acceptable uh, intervention rate. It's not great. It would be nice if it was zero. But compared to a common bile duct injury, I would be willing to do five or 10 reinterventions if, if that was the number needed to treat to prevent one common bile duct injury, maybe even more. Um, and obviously, that's not good data that we're likely to get anytime soon because no one's going to randomize people to bile duct injuries but um i think it's it's important to bear in mind it's not a perfect technique uh but the alternative i think is worse
1: well ma'am thank you so much for agreeing to come on and we, we absolutely hope to have you on in the near future
3: i would love to be on you guys are doing great work
0: until next time dominate the day